morning, Africa, and welcome to Debrek Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vongani in Washington. Today is Wednesday, March the 9th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights is calling on the Ethiopian government, Tigrayan forces, and other armed groups to end the violence and abuses that are keeping northern Ethiopia in crisis. The attacks that I have cited and many others raise serious concerns under international humanitarian law, which prohibits the deliberate targeting of civilian and civilian objects. That is UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet. And as the world marks International Women's Day, Somalia is wrapping up long-delayed parliamentary elections without likely reaching a promised 30% quota for women lawmakers. Female candidates have faced resistance from men in Somalia's patriarchal communities. That is Ahmed Mohammed reporting from Somalia's capital, Mogadishu. We have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, is urging the Ethiopian government, Tigrayan forces and other armed groups to end the violence and abuses that are keeping northern Ethiopia in crisis. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. UN Rights Chief Bachelet expressed alarm Tuesday at the growing human rights and humanitarian crisis in northern Ethiopia. She said the 16-month conflict between Ethiopian government forces and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, has spread into the neighboring regions of Afar and Amhara. This, she said, has increased the number of civilian deaths and casualties and the destruction of civilian property throughout the region. The High Commissioner said no one in this war has clean hands. The comments come as the UN Human Rights Office released a new report on the Tigray conflict, covering the period from November 22nd of last year to February 28th. Bachelet said her office has documented hundreds of killings and injuries of civilians due to multiple airstrikes by the Ethiopian Air Force. At the same time, she said the Tigrayan forces and other armed groups have carried out devastating attacks in Afar and Amhara, resulting in scores of deaths and hundreds of injuries. She accused the warring parties of gross violations of human rights, of looting and the destruction of civilian infrastructure, including schools and health facilities. The attacks that I have cited and many others raise serious concerns under international humanitarian law which prohibits the deliberate targeting of civilian and civilian objects, as well as indiscriminate attacks that strike military objectives and civilians without distinction. I again urge the government, Tigrayan forces and all other parties to the conflict to cease such violations. Ambassador Malet Hailu Gaudi is Ethiopia's deputy permanent representative to the UN in Geneva. She took umbrage at the report, saying it was based on rigged narratives that had nothing to do with the reality on the ground. She said it was unfortunate that human rights were being cynically used to bolster what she termed terrorist groups to the detriment of the Ethiopian government. She added Ethiopia abided by its human rights obligations and was prepared to engage in a constructive dialogue to resolve the conflict. High Commissioner Bachelet spoke of the growing humanitarian crisis in the region. 
She notes hostilities and insecurity continue to block the delivery of humanitarian supplies into Tigray. This, she says, has led to growing food insecurity, poverty and displacement. Excellencies, during the reporting period, OCHR recorded more than 50,000 arbitrary arrests and detentions in connection with the state of emergency decreed by the government. Most appear to be ordinary citizens of Tigrayan ethnicity. I am encouraged by the authorities' recent decision to lift the state of emergency. Ethiopia launched its military offensive in Tigray on November 4, 2020, to oust the TPLF from its northern stronghold. The UN says 40% of Tigray's population of 6 million suffer from acute hunger, with 400,000 on the verge of famine. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. And as the world marks International Women's Day, Somalia is wrapping up long-delayed parliamentary elections without likely reaching a promised 30% quota for women lawmakers. So far, female candidates have secured only half the needed seats to reach the quota in Somalia's indirect polls, as some traditional clans have refused to select women leaders. Ahmed Mohammed reports from Mogadishu. The chair of Somali Women Association, Batula Ahmed Gabale does not have much to celebrate this International Women's Day. Prime Minister Mohammed Hussein Roble appointed her to spearhead efforts to reach a 30% quota for women lawmakers in the country's long-delayed indirect parliamentary elections. But Gabale says female candidates have faced resistance from men in Somalia's patriarchal communities. She says how the election took place is different from what was agreed upon, as well as the procedure for its implementation. Gabale says each community with three or more seats should have allocated one seat for women's quota. But clan elders, who play a key role in selecting potential lawmakers, have been blocking women from seeking office. Out of the 275 seats for Somalia's lower house, Clans have so far selected only 44 women. They will need to choose another 40 women by March 15th to meet the 30% quota, but only 65 seats remain to be filled. Gabale says reaching the 30% quota at this point is very unlikely. It has been observed that many women who were prepared to run in the elections were rejected, she says. They were not given respect and their rights, which would have boosted the women's quota. Gabala says the problems were created by the state election commissions and the regional presidents who choose to break the law. The spokesperson for Somalia's federal indirect elections team, Ahmed Safina, argues that the electoral body has done its best. He says... They maintain that 30% of the seats should be allocated to women only. Women can also compete for the remaining 70% of the seats, says Safina, just as men do. But Somali women candidates say patriarchal beliefs among the clan delegates means many women are overlooked. Aisha Omar Gezdir is contesting for a seat in Somali's south-central Hirshabeli state. She says... Traditional beliefs means women are not viewed as leaders of their clan, 
but has been under their husband's clans. Clans elect men, but not women, says Gezdir, because Somalis believe that women belong to their husband's clan. She says her biggest challenge is that her children are not viewed as being from her clan. Men have always dominated politics and power in Somalia. A country is still recovering from years of civil war and bottling terrorism. Somalia's elections were to take place a year ago, but failed in Tamil after President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed and his allies Bush a term extension through parliament. The move was repealed after deadly clashes in the capital Mogadishu and under international pressure. Somalia's elections have since been delayed several times because of political wrangling between the president and the prime minister. The last time on February 25th, if completed by the new deadline of March 15th, the lawmakers chosen by the Kalan delegates will then pick the next president of Somalia. Ahmed Mohamed for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. This is Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. About 100 Kenyan women protested in Nairobi on Tuesday against gender-based violence after a video circulated on social media showing men on motorcycles attacking a young woman. The protest came on International Women's Day. Mohammed Yusuf reports from the capital, Nairobi. Kenyan women were in the streets of Nairobi Tuesday in protest of motorbike taxi drivers who allegedly assaulted a woman last week. The protesters, organized by the Federation of Women Lawyers, gave the capital's police chief a petition seeking assurance of their safety and protection from all forms of harassment. A video widely circulated on Kenyan social media platforms showed a woman driver being manhandled by a dozen angry men and screaming for help in Nairobi last week. The incident prompted a public outcry and many women called on police to take action against drivers who act without regard to the law. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta also called for a general crackdown on motorcycle riders. Kenyan radio station Capital FM quoted Police Chief Hilary Meteyambai saying officers have arrested 229 riders and seized at least 900 bikes over the past two days. The relationship between motorcycle riders and the public has deteriorated due to a perceived tendency for drivers to not follow traffic rules and to use violence to intimidate motorists and pedestrians. The Federation of Women Lawyers has called for the creation of a task force to curb rogue riders. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. The UN says that digital literacy is an essential skill in today's global marketplace, increasing one's opportunity to find gainful employment and other economic and social benefits. Studies show that in many parts of the developing world, technology and specifically the Internet continues to be a catalyst for economic growth and development. However, in Africa, the gaps in access to digital tools and knowledge persist, especially for women and girls. They face a number of barriers, including stereotypes around technology being a man's domain. Hannah Bezad is a tech entrepreneur in Morocco. She's the founder of Duar Tech an organization that offers programs in rural communities training mostly women 
to use and create digital tools and online content. She joins me from Rabat and starts off by explaining the meaning behind the name Duar Tech. Duar means village, uh, so the idea was to bring and use tech and really reach uh, the most marginalized population, uh, mostly women, to really provide them with an opportunity to uh, participate in the digital revolution of the 21st century. I started it in 2017 uh, upon my return to Morocco. I actually had the idea way back when I was in Paris, living a totally different life as a digital strategy consultant, but realizing that there was something calling me to bring back uh, something meaningful to home. And uh, as a matter of fact, I realized the, the digital gap was widening. I could see from my perspective the the tech uh, space kind of going faster and faster in uh, uh, creating more tech. And I just thought, how are we going to do in the future what, where people will be paying in crypto? And uh, we're now speaking about the metaverse and so on. And some people here in Morocco, and I think it's the case in many other places in the world, have a hard time understanding uh, what internet is. So Hannah, you, you have this great idea, but... How were you able to sell it to your community, more or less start the company? So we started, it's a grassroots initiative. We started very small, very experimental. Uh, eventually, uh, we created our own learning management system because we started understanding that it would be important to bring um, programs. And despite having the challenges of connectivity, we built a platform that was usable without connectivity, mm. uh, thinking, you know, we really want to go to rural areas. Now at 2022, having we've trained 400 people, there. so you can imagine kind of like the fast pace into where uh, we're scaling uh, in Morocco, but also outside of Morocco. We're very much in touch with a lot of other innovative communities in Africa. And when we talk about the digital divide, we often think of it in terms of the infrastructure and other aspects of accessibility that limit people in rural areas or in developing countries from using digital tools. However, there's also a gender aspect to this digital divide. How, how does that manifest itself in Morocco? Uh, in Morocco, the, in terms of infrastructure, we're actually doing uh, okay. When it comes to mobile penetration, we're at more than tw- 120%. Um, so that means that there are several mobiles held by individuals. Uh, 3G, 4G is quite accessible in a lot of places, even in rural areas. However, when it comes to having access to it, uh, then we have to face uh, power dynamics that are very patriarchal. So when you go into families that are in rural areas, sometimes women would want to have access to internet. However, men would not let them uh, check out YouTube, be on social media. And uh, and that can be a challenge for them. Uh, You have to bear in mind that uh, Morocco is a place where officially there's only 10% of female participation in the workplace and that has decreased in the last few years. It was 30% at some point. So uh, it's, it's, uh, we're facing kind of a grave situation, um, a grave trend that needs to be addressed. Um, a lot of uh, women are taken out of school. Um, and uh, yeah, so all of this contributes to the fact that even if there's more knowledge potentially accessible, they don't necessarily have the chance to do it. And on top of it, they need to be trained. So it's one thing to be able to, to use social media, but most of the time when they have access to it, they kind of replicate low, uh, low value interactions. Now, after their training and acquisition of these skills, 
they enter a marketplace that is still very much traditional and restrictive in many ways. How do they overcome such barriers? I think one, one thing to bear in mind is that we believe in tech. However, tech cannot come uh, uh, as, as the only solution. Tech has to come with a holistic approach of empowerment. So for us, there's a strong focus on mentorship, on creating connections for them and access to human capital that is something that they will uh, fructify long term. Um, so we also bring uh, what we call micro work opportunities. So while they're doing the program and the program is free for them, they build uh, capacity and professional experience through creating websites for other people, for instance, or having chunks of the value chain of a web development product. Now, we're at a very interesting stage now because we managed to create a partnership with BMW. Uh, they have a web development team in Portugal, and we're starting to send trainees uh, to get an internship, long-term internship, so nine months in Portugal. And the idea is for them to gain this experience and to come empowered and fully empower their, their communities. That was Hannah Bezad, founder of Duartec in Morocco. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. Secondary school students in Cameroon have taken to the streets to support their teachers who have been protesting for weeks, demanding better pay and working conditions. Cameroon's president, Paul Bia, on Monday ordered about $4 million to be paid to the striking teachers, but they say that it's only a fraction of what they are owed. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Cameroon's Ministry of Secondary Education says thousands of students in towns and villages protested Tuesday not having teachers. Cameroon's state school teachers have been striking for two weeks over back pay and poor salaries. The education ministry said more than a thousand secondary school students marched on the streets in the port city of Douala and several hundred protested in the capital Yaoundé. Hundreds more demonstrated in other towns calling on the government to pay teachers their back pay so students can get an education. Boniface Ade is a 21-year-old student at the government bilingual high school in Douala. He says their education will be compromised if the government fails to listen to the disgruntled teachers. It's negligence and irresponsibility on the part of the Cameroonian government. How on earth do you expect somebody to cope for one year, two years, even up to seven years without a salary? These teachers, our families, they need money. Cameroonian teachers associations and trade unions called the strike action two weeks ago demanding back pay, some dating back years. They also called for an increase in monthly salaries for primary school teachers from about $150 to $400 and for secondary school teachers from about $400 to $800. Cameroon's state radio CRTV on Monday announced that Cameroon's president, Paul Bia, ordered the payment of $4 million to the striking teachers. The government said the money was for back pay to teachers who graded final high school examinations. The amount was quickly rejected by the striking teachers as not enough. Thomas Ngenge is a history teacher 
and spokesman for one of the associations spearheading the strike. Nous avons repris la troisième semaine de grève le 7 mars 2022. Le gouvernement. He says the amount is largely insignificant because the government owes teachers close to 170 million dollars. Ngenge says teachers will continue their protests until the government pays them at least half of the $170 million he says they are owed. The teachers claim some government workers demand bribes before their salaries are paid. Alfred Etom is Director of Studies and Cooperation at Cameroon's National Anti-Corruption Commission, CONAC. He says they are investigating the corruption complaints and will punish anyone found guilty. C'est le lieu pour moi d'interpeller les chefs de département ministériel ainsi que les chefs de celui de lutte contre la corruption. Etom says Conac is asking government officials to immediately stop unjustifiable delays in the treatment of teachers' recruitment files and the payment of teachers' salaries. The Teachers' Association of Cameroon, TAC, says education authorities created the back pay problem by recruiting more teachers than they can afford. Cameroon's government has held four meetings with the teachers to try to negotiate an end to the strike, but have so far failed. Last week, the government promised to pay outstanding salaries for at least 17,000 teachers, but did not say when they would be paid. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. Uganda's decision to withdraw from the International Coffee Organization has led to a split among coffee producers in the country. Halima Atumani reports from Kampala on the controversy roiling Africa's second largest coffee exporter. Coffee farmer Robert Kavshenga in Uganda's Wakiso district is among the coffee producers who are upset about the country's decision last month to withdraw from the International Coffee Organization, or ICO. Uganda says tariffs and other barriers restricting its coffee exports triggered the decision to withdraw from a two-year extension of ICO's 2007 International Coffee Agreement. But Kapshenga describes the decision as reckless and illegal, telling VOA it will harm Uganda coffee farmers. How does that affect the farmer? It means that without that number, the coffee buyer who has been buying can only buy the coffee he can sell because there he's sure he has a contract. He's not sure he can take it to the warehouses in ICE. And because of that, we could quite easily end up with surplus crop here because there's no buyer. But... The National Union of Coffee Agribusiness, NUCAFE, which includes some 1,500 coffee farmers, supports the government's decision to withdraw. Executive Director Joseph Nkandu says farmers now have the opportunity to take ownership of their product and to invest and upgrade their coffee. The farmer has been getting far less than 5% of the retail value. Where does the 95% go? And the only way for this farmer to enhance the value that is getting from this coffee value chain is to upgrade. Uganda's withdrawal does not mean an end to exporting coffee, according to the managing director of Uganda's Coffee Development Authority. Emmanuel Iamlemi says Uganda's small and medium-sized enterprises can now focus on promoting their coffee in other markets. We are looking at the specialty market 
We have our young youth, our SMEs, which are looking at entering big markets like the United States, uh, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and of course the Scandinavian countries and Europe. ICO officials say the organization has tried to resolve Uganda's complaints but has not received a response, adding that the reasons for the withdrawal were not strong or related to the agreement. Speaking to VOA via Zoom, IC Operations Head Geraldo Petaconi says the organization is looking at the integration of the private sector and a public-private task force in a new draft coffee agreement with Uganda. This is a, is a new opportunity and this opportunity to me is unique and I say that's why it's supported by donors and supported by industry. So Uganda is a leading producing of coffee. It's so sad it, it doesn't see that this as an opportunity. Mm. And whatever concern should be discussed within. They say this is a coffee diplomacy. Uganda is currently Africa's leading exporter of Robusta coffee, exporting 6.1 million bags annually. Halima Othmani for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you 